0: What ho, and welcome to Listen to Lillian. That's me, your host Lillian Crawford, freelance film critic and writer with a particular interest in women's relationships with British cinema. This podcast is paired with a Substack newsletter, which you can subscribe to at listentolillian.substack.com, following my research and cinematic adventures. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by writer and programmer So Mayer. They've brought not one, but two films along with them, both directed by women in 1992. Blue-Black Permanent by Margaret Tate, and Orlando by Sally Potter. Before we get started, here's an audio taste of the two films. Hi, so how are you?
1: Hi, I'm great, enjoying the sunshine today.
0: Yeah, it's nice and sunny for once. Um, Would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? I mean, hopefully they all know who you are already. um...
1: (laughs) I prefer to be an international being of mystery. Um, (laughs) I suppose I can reveal that I am a writer. uh, I'm a bookseller at Burley Fisher Books in London. And I'm part of Queer Feminist Film Curation Collective, Club des Femmes. Wonderful
0: um and you when I asked you which film you'd like to do um there was an obvious choice although unfortunately um I had already sort of done it before but I think we're going to be talking about it in in a rather different way. Do you want to introduce that film and your own connection to it?
1: The obvious choice i, I assumed um would be the one is sally potter's film orlando the 1992 adaptation of virginia Woolf's novel i am currently writing a bfi film classics on the film, and I have previously written a book called The Cinema of Sally Potter, um, The Politics of Love, uh, which does contain a chapter on Orlando. But this is an amazing opportunity to expand on it using some of the archival materials from the making of the film, which is now 30 years ago.
0: Oh, Amazing. Are the archival materials in the BFI archive?
1: They're not, they're currently in um, the director's private archive, but there is an online version of that archive called Spark, S-P-A-R-K, which I helped build. And you can go and see everything from call sheets to rushes to the original contract signed with the mayor of the town in Uzbekistan, where Mm -hmm. the Uzbek scenes were filmed, which was signed on a napkin with a vodka drinking ceremony, very much like the scene with the Khan in the film in the desert How so incredible. yeah a real like film school out of the box and a real gospel treat with some wonderful pictures um of the star tilda swinton uh and many of the other performers as well like quentin crisp and jimmy somerville so it's just it's a gay delight
0: wonderful the the archival material saw, the, <laughs> the archival material <laughs> okay is. excellent well hopefully I, I, the book I will be a gay, book. a
1: gay delight yeah. as well <laughs>
0: Well, I can't wait. It's very oh, exciting. I um so, And yeah. then because I said that I'd sort of done it before and I I mean I could talk about Orlando forever, so um I'm sure that we'll we'll get onto it as well. But um I also asked if you fancied doing another film to supplement it. Um so you've chosen another film from nineteen ninety two. Um would you like to set that one up for us as well?
1: It's an amazing coincidence that this film, uh, is also from 1992. It's also uh, about a poet, um, although in this case it's the only fiction feature film that was made by a very prolific Orcadian uh, filmmaker, the amazing Margaret Tate, who made hundreds of short films films throughout her life Uh, sometimes literally throughout her life she would work on them for decades and when she was in her early 70s she was given the opportunity to uh, make a feature to pitch feature um, by uh, the BFI Uh, and she made this incredible film called Blue Black Permanent but whereas Orlando at least reached some art house cinemas and I actually saw it on its first release because I'm very old. I didn't come across Blue Black Permanent until about 15, 16 years ago when there was a touring program of her short films and Blue Black Permanent put together by Peter Todd, uh, who'd screened her films in the 70s and 80s at the NFT in his amazing film poem, poem film, all one word program uh and i was in toronto at the time and that's where uh i saw this film from uh shot in orkney and edinburgh and it just absolutely blew me away and i became obsessed with it and now we're lucky enough to have it on dvd and blu-ray so more people can see it
0: yeah absolutely i mean, that's how i first saw it i think i um I think I might have won a blue the Blu-ray in a quiz at some point. <laughs> it was my my prize, so um, that's how I first saw um, Blue Black Permanent. And it's um, yeah, it's it's really extraordinary. But I've been I've been aware of Orlando for quite a lot longer. Um, I'm trying to remember when I must have first first seen it. I think it might have even been through Mubi when Mubi sort of started. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. So it was it was later than perhaps I'd. I'd like I'd have liked it to have been I think if I'd seen it when I was a teenager it might have um it would have had a very sort of profound impact in the way that Derek Jarman's films did because my mm. my grandmother is a big Jarman fan and introduced me to to his films um which um as I said earlier um sort of the connection between Jarman's films and his style and Orlando for me is quite clear that they they do seem maybe it's Tilda Swinton's presence but there is something sort of um, that that ties them together is is that the case? For, I mean, sh- sh- perhaps it would be a good way to talk about sort of what Sally, what point Sally Potter's at, how her career has sort of um, mm. developed to this point, and then we can contrast it to to Margaret Tate, which is a very different. Um, sort of a filmmaker at the start of their career and and a filmmaker at the end of hers.
1: First of all, I'm quite jealous because my grandma was a Clint Eastwood fan. Okay. So my childhood cinematic <laughs> education was was quite different. I got in quite a lot of trouble in the playground for quoting Clint inappropriately. <laughs> <laughs> um so one of the most magical uh archival assets that I came across while I was researching the cinema of Saudi Potter was a cassette tape in the old BFI library, which was in BFI Stephen Street on the ground floor. And it was a recording of an NFT on stage. They, I think they were called masterclasses in those days. And it was, um, I think it was a screening of Wittgenstein. And after the screening, uh, it was Sally interviewing Derek Jarman about his filmmaking. You know, this we're towards the end of his over at this point. It's the last film I'll make before Blue. Right. Um, this incredibly beautiful, intellectual, knotty film about questions of becoming and identity and language. And at the end of the conversation, um, Derek gives Sally a first edition of Orlando. It's almost like you know, a proposal on stage at the Super yeah. Bowl or something. She's been working mm-hmm. on developing the film for several years, and it's it does feel like both a gift between friends and a sort of handing on of the, the torch mm-hmm. to say keep going this practice of queering history, of challenging ideas of Britishness, of challenging ideas of gender and class, um, of using costume in this as a gay delight and yeah. using music um, to sound out you know the extraordinary existence of our fluid bodies and you know there's obviously a sort of erratic connection when you hear a conversation between two figures in history it's like there's so many plays that are about that oh this meeting of x and y but it it felt so friendly there wasn't any overt stagey significance about it but it also felt very a conscientious or yeah a conscious gesture mm-hmm. as well as conscientious between two filmmakers was so conscious of of gesture of the history of art of the history of influence um so a lot of people think of orlando as being sally's first feature and it was uh a a very successful film um it sort of broke the box office in australia um It was distributed by a tiny company that was literally called Ronin Films that had a small number of independent cinemas. And it became this huge word of mouth success where it was on screens for like nearly a year. Um, And partially because of the amazing Tilda Swinton, it got a lot of major magazine coverage and became a real success in America as well, to the point that there are news articles calling the emerging athleisure trend at that time Orlando leggings and claiming that people assigned female at birth are wearing leggings at that time because of the influence of Orlando. (laughs) An excuse for lots of pictures of Tilda Swinton's legs. (laughs) So it's, I wasn't really aware of its kind of international reputation at the time. I just like went to see it with my friends at the cinema. I also had no idea who Sally Potter was because um her first feature film, made in 1983, The Gold Diggers, starring Julie Christie and Colette Lafont. It's an incredible feminist Marxist musical shot in black and white with a, a looping time travel narrative, uh, which I think we'll talk about with Orlando and Blue Black Permanent mm-hmm. as well. I think it's a very deep influence on David Lynch. Um, right. Watch The Gold Diggers, then re-watch um, Marlon Drive, and you'll be like, <gasps> Silencio! he stole it, Um, fight me, the reception- I believe you, that's, that's, I can see it. Oh, I, you know, listeners can fight me. Um, (laughs) The reception of this uh, feminist queer film that has like an anti-empire song in it, and we're talking Mm. like the height of, you know, this just off Thatcher's second election victory was as stinking and misogynist and racist as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. from the British press. And so The Goldeckers was, which was at that time, the film with the highest budget made by women in the UK. Yeah. Um, And it had been written, directed and produced by Collective, uh, Sally with her collaborators, Lindsay Cooper and Ray's English. Um, The whole crew was women. Everyone was paid the same rate from the spark to Julie Christie, who instantly said she loved it. She felt that it was a great relief after doing these stressful Hollywood films. Um, It was withdrawn from circulation and it became a real struggle for Sally. Uh, who was seen as someone who had made a great disgrace when in fact, what had happened, she endured Mm. a great disgrace from the treatment of the film um so a really long struggle back to getting people to give funding for the film um so while as you said you know we have someone who's at the beginning of the career or seems to be at the beginning of the career and like a lot of American press in particular represents Orlando as a first film as if Sally hadn't started making films in the mid-70s um and Margaret Tate at the end of her career it would be the last completed film she'd make what we really have is like two filmmakers who are both fighting their way Mm -hmm. through a misogynist classist british filmmaking system both of them very attracted to making short films experimental short films that incorporate music dance, poetry, not your usual calling (laughs) card type films Um, and so the coincidence of them meeting with their features in 1992-93 amplified by the fact that the original casting for Greta in Blue Black Permanent was Tilda Swinton who is said to be the spitting image of Anne Scott Moncrief uh, one of the poets uh, in Tate's Uh, circle who uh, is one of the bases for that Mm. main character um i think it just it tells you a lot about british independent film what filmmakers were up against and what was happening in this not i mean there's nothing magic about it there was funding uh through the bfi production board from the you know, late 60s through to the mid 80s, that was specifically to support filmmakers who were working in different ways. And then Channel 4, through the ACTT workshop declaration, took over that baton, in a sense, from the early 80s. Channel 4 specifically had this remit to support underrepresented filmmakers and not just support them with exposure to ensure they could get paid. Because up till that point, you could not get paid um, to work on independent films you couldn't you had to be in a union and working on union productions so it was and it's amazing uh, as as Margot Hawkins said at, at the screening of her film Hushabye Baby which is a northern Irish film from 1990 this weekend at the Rio it's amazing this happened under Thatcher the, the production board and then Channel 4 but it tells you how urgent it was what people were fighting against what you know the kind of chariots of firefication of British cinema Mm -hmm. so there was never a lot of money but there was just enough just enough wiggle room just enough people who'd come through the 60s and 70s who were fighting for a cinema that was artistically different politically different and then yes you get blue black permanent and Orlando Mm. within the same year absolutely
0: um and they make watching them together um was just such an extraordinary experience I mean the the, this is sort of an ideal double bill almost there's so many overlapping ideas and themes that the poetry that comes out in both of them these sorts of multi-generational portraits of of women are just so beautiful and so gorgeous it really was sort of um a bit of a special treat to sort of put these two together um in in preparation for for this podcast. Um one of the Let's make it I, happen. Yeah. yeah. No. Let's that, get that, people that into a cinema we should to do see it. Them together. Yeah. I think so. Um uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask about Margaret Tate, which I wasn't hundred percent sure of was how much she had sort of tried to make a feature film before this point. Um, because I know that she was going to make she hoped to make a sequel to to Blueback Permanent afterwards um had was this the first feature that she tried she wanted to make or had it been in production for a long time do do you know uh
1: I can tell you a little bit uh so for people who haven't come across Margaret Tate before which is as you can (laughs) as you've probably worked out understandable (laughs) um Margaret uh Tate uh studied medicine uh, in Edinburgh before the Second World War and then she um served as an army medic in what's now Sri Lanka and Burma um and then ended the war in Italy where she attended and I always this is I find this so hard to say but I'm gonna have a go.
0: It's, it's, it's a hard one to pronounce yeah <laughs> the
1: Centro Sperimentale di Fotografia. Va bene. I Which, like that. <laughs> Was a a film school that had, was a sort of hot, radical hotbed that had run during the war, um, you know, during fascism, keeping Mm. kind of the motor of Italian non fascist cinema turning. So she had this amazing, um, transformative experience. People came, there were people there from all over the world uh, studying cinema. And she bonded very deeply with a number of other young filmmakers and always considered herself an international filmmaker, someone who was going to link Orkney and Edinburgh to Rome and New York, which was mm-hmm. what the um the business card for her film company, Ancona Films, read. Um, Edinburgh, New York, Rome. Like an amazingly international vision, um, if you think about 50s British cinema. Mm. She did, when she came back um, to Britain, get to know Lindsay Anderson mm-hmm. uh, just before the founding or development of the Free cinema movement, which included the Italian filmmaker Lorena Mazzetti, mm. who I think we're now considering the first woman to make an independent film in Britain. Right. I think yes. yeah. Our um, archival research is always turning up exactly new, new material
0: we, we believe her to be at least we believe her to
1: be and again an incredible writer uh as well as filmmaker fiction mm. writer and a non-fiction writer so tay really early was talking to Lindsay anderson and she had a number of draft um fiction feature film scripts that she was shopping around what there was then of the the remaining old British studio system most of which as far as we know as far as Sarah Neely's research shows were based on her wartime experiences including one based on a novel she wrote called The Lily White Boys about a transit camp for injured um, British Commonwealth soldiers in Burma and she was told oh there's no appetite for this stuff oh the war's been done so it's you yeah. should have had you know, a, a filmmaker informed by the ideas that were yeah. informing Rossellini and Pasolini <laughs> making anti-war or unwar films at the time when, you know, the David Lean epics were were happening. Right. But yeah. she, you know, she was there, she was in the mix, and Lindsay Anderson was, you know, carried on saying to her, You have to come back down to London. And she said, Why why should I? Why is London the center of the universe? She then also had a bit of a tangle with John Grierson, the so-called mm. daddy of a yeah, documentary yeah. and certainly of Scottish film, who didn't like how poetic her films were and said, you know, she should edit them to be, as she said, more tack, 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 tack. So she was always trying. She was she wanted to see more investment in, in Scottish cinema. She was always... Yeah writing to local government to say have you thought about something Scottish filmmakers are still doing have you thought about investing in filmmaking facilities in Scotland have you thought about a film festival in Scotland she did her own screenings during the Edinburgh festival in her Rose street studio uh, and apparently kids would run down the streets saying you know is there going to be films missus but the critics who came up from London she said Couldn't, she didn't didn't get her films, and she said, It's as if they had difficulty understanding anything straightforward and clear. Doesn't sound like anyone I've ever come across. Um, so she was making these beautiful short films. She famously made a film with the poet Hugh McDermott, she made a film with a Gerald Manley Hopkins poem called The Leaden Echo and the Golden Echo, um, and then. You know, she moved back to Orkney, and at that point, in British film senses, she was further away from the centre of everything. To her heart, yeah. she was closer to the centre of everything. Of course, yeah. Uh, and she certainly made an Orcadian cinema, um, mm. which will be black permanent moves between Edinburgh and Orkney. Um, so this wasn't a film that I don't think had been in development in that sense for a long time. It was. Uh, an idea uh, Greta Stevenson who plays Gerda says for her this the idea comes out of a short story that Margaret Tate wrote that's in one of one of her self-published books um the book she self-published for children um it has the film has a lovely the short story has the lovely title Pinky Rock Pools
0: that's gorgeous
1: isn't it from um the grassy stories Uh, And it has all this imagery of anemones that really relates to that central scene in the film of Gerda's mother on the beach in the cave with her grandparents, Um, which is sort of the primal memory of the film. Um, So her films, as I said, even her short films would sometimes develop over decades. She she was an additive filmmaker, a sort of diary filmmaker who would edit and re-edit and re-edit and and re-edit bringing in new images until she felt she had a hole um and then adding sound um so blue black permanent was made in a much more conventional way there are actually pictures of her on the beach in her director's chair in her 70s uh which you can imagine Anya Varda looking at and saying right that's what I'm gonna do on yeah. the beach <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know if they ever met. Uh believe that Permanent came out at the time when Varda was not in the film world after the right. death of Jacques Demy, but mm. in my head, I like to think that they did. No,
0: yeah, I can see that. I can see that sort of overlap between them and and particularly with sort of Varda's later films when she's getting to that age as well, that sort of I mean, Le Plage d'Agnès and um, in Varda by Agnes where she sort of sends these, these scenes sort of sat on the beach reflecting mm. on her her life um, and I suppose yeah that maybe that must come from Margaret Tate because it, it seems it seems so so intimately yeah. tied to her um, and I can see her films particularly her short films being very sort of connected to to Varda's own um, shorts and sort of the interest in in the minutiae of nature that you see in these these coastlines which are some absolutely gorgeous shots within blueback permanent and I think that's what well, it's so striking having seen quite a few of her short films not all of them I, I must confess but um I uh because there's so many of them <laughs> um, but, none of us uh, have seen all of them no us have seen all of them but <laughs> I've seen quite a few um and I, I love that those elements of what those sort of because they, they do feel like small poems um then coming into the feature film as well um and I think you can see I mean. We can talk about the the influence of this of this film quite a lot. I mean, there's two inf- films in particular that I, I I would think of, but one that I was thinking yesterday, rewatching it um for the first time since I've seen Ammonite was how much of Ammonite is sort of taking, seems to be taking from 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 this film and what um Francis Lee is sort of using in those those kind of I suppose pillow shots might be the best way to describe them. I mean, there is a certain sort of Ozu-esque idea to 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 using them to punctuate the narrative um to give a pause which so many films don't don't necessarily do um yeah if you want to comment on that before i sort of <laughs> i might save the 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 sort of the legacy of the film for later i don't know um, okay. it seems like a bad oh, time I'm, to talk about it now
1: <laughs> i'm really intrigued i mean i think rather than saying oh yes Blue Black Permanent is a direct influence on Ammonite, right. although I'm sure yeah. Francis Lee, you know, lined up, give me all the films about the yeah. <laughs> you know, coastline of the of the British Isles. Uh, you know, and when you see if you've seen Penny Wilcox's sort of supercar archive documentary From the Sea to the Land Beyond, you see yeah. just how important um the sea and the coastline has been uh in British cinema and television. Um and i think part of what we're saying is not very many british filmmakers express the the influence of european cinema mm-hmm. and the right. lee and tate are both expressing the influence of filmmakers at, 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 you know as you say ozu but also i think the italian neorealists yeah. um in particular of having those moments of pause, attention to minutiae, making films that have the rhythm of the place that they're in. Um, every, you know, people think a lot about the Italian neorealists as, as very urban filmmakers, but a film like La Tierra Trema um, shows their deep you know, involvement in and attachment to the disappearing uh, rural rhythms of life in regional Italy as well. And I think that made a deep impression on Tate. And I think so much of British cinema is driven by financing to look like mm. Hollywood cinema, that it's it's really salutary to to feel those those rhythms. And I think, you know, Derek Drummond and Sally Potter also fit in that category of what we could call art, cinema, mm. um, filmmakers, um, for Sally, particularly the influence of Soviet, Uh, filmmakers and she actually made a documentary about um, called I am an ox I am a horse I am a man I am a woman women in um, Russian cinema which you can see or Soviet cinema which you can see on her website Mm. um, which was a product of archival research in Moscow and St. Petersburg during Glasnost and that deep dive is um, you know I think is in some ways parallel to Tate's experience of being in the crucible of Italian cinema in the Mm -hmm. 50s you know not many British directors are having those transnational um non-Hollywood uh informed experiences Mm -hmm. uh and it's really it's really palpable
0: yeah no definitely um and the the way that those those European influences sort of then becoming Something very specifically Scottish and Orcadian, as as, as you say, which um, the the two filmmakers I think of. Um, I think in particular this this um, this nightclub scene that appears in in Blue Black Permanent, which which is very much in my head, sort of connected to Lynn Ramsey's Morphin Colour and most recently to Charlotte Wells' um, After Sun, which in one as as shot in after Sun which seems to um, have captured a lot of people um, and certainly captured my attention when I was watching it is that there's a pile of books next to a television and you've got um, Margaret Tate's collection of um, stories and poems and and writings and um, I seeing these connections to to a Scottish cinema to these later Mm -hmm. Scottish filmmakers um, really ties into that sort of handing down that the film is about and and that Orlando is also um, Mm. about in particularly the ending of Orlando when um, Sally Potter changes the ending and we have um, Orlando's daughter with the 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 film camera Um, I just I just find that sort of legacy really really rather beautiful Um, you can probably think of many more examples but those are the two that I sort of had in my mind when I was watching it
1: that Nightclub or the the party scene uh and then the nightclub scene of Morvin color have been so influential. Like for mm. a time in the mid 2000s there was not a film with Samantha Morton in it that didn't feel it right. had to <laughs> you know, like going 49 to that, you know, it was so iconic to to link that to that, you know, really very beautiful, very sweet, very rhythmic scene in in blue black permanent where margaret mm. is going i'm down with the kids right you know uh so one of her very early short films although it took her a long time to, to complete it was a film called calypso which she made literally only a few years after the empire windrush landed um in tilbury so mm. Um, and it has calypso music and it's it's dancing, it's scratch animation of dancing figures painted scratch animation of dancing yeah. figures. So she's someone who, you know, we think of Orkney as uh you know there's a there's a real English tendency to colonially primitivize the the Celtic nations and the further away they are to, to think of them in that way. But she was um, thinking in a far more inclusive internationalist anti-racist aesthetically radical way than mm. many filmmakers who thought they were in the swing of it uh in London at the time and so I love the cheap the cheekiness of that nightclub scene of being like yeah, yeah I'm, I'm 73 and I you know what I love a banger
0: <laughs> and yeah, the light so the
1: lighting in it is you know maybe it was more... the
0: lighting that I was thinking mm. of specifically in relation to yeah to, to it's the, not to just that typical. Moment.
1: Rotating eighties, hectic lighting. Uh, it yeah. it produces kind of oceanic mm. effects that you know stimulate yeah. Barbara's memory, and so that's the other th- thing we should say. We've mentioned Grasso, the character played by Gerda Stevenson, but um, Barbara was played by Celia Imri yeah, who in you know in some ways was the bankable name, right? <laughs> in of course, the, yes. the film made, and she's a an artist living in eighties nineties. Edinburgh, a visual artist. uh, And through the film, she is recovering this story of her mother, which she's telling to her partner, uh, who she's not married to, as Tate never married her lifelong lover, uh, Alex Pyrie, who they lived together, they lived separately, you know, they had a very deeply creative and supportive relationship, which is from the 60s onwards an incredible story, also. and so Barbara is, you know, having an exhibition and she's, it's sending her back to think about her mother, Greta, who was a poet, um, who uh, moved to Edinburgh, that's where the fa- the family lived, but went back to Orkney um, to visit her father. And, be- you know, the, the film is very much about implication. It's like a child's understanding of what's happening, right. that her mother couldn't bring herself to come back to Edinburgh and to kind of bourgeois, heteronormative family life and, and the city when she's so deeply attached to place and community and her, her father is unwell. Um, and we're getting away from the film's influence on other films. But I think your point about right. After Sun is a really good one because we actually don't know what blue-black permanence influence is going to be yet. Yeah, of course. It's only been on DVD um, for five years. Mm. So um, since Tate, the anniversary of Tate's 100th birthday, she was born on Armistice Day, 11-11, yeah. 1918. Um, and so I think it's a question for like the next five to ten years, but there's still mm. only maybe two dozen um oh. scottish filmmakers of marginalized genders so mm. i think that genealogy is being literally constructed uh wow. as we speak and yeah. the enormous and deserved success of Sun, mm. i think is partially because of its hot you know really heartfelt very cleverly placed um tribute to genealogy of of women filmmakers including tate and and Lynn ramsey and that 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 film is now being seen all over the world and hopefully people will go oh what is that what is yeah. that book pause button right Screenshot. No,
0: definitely yeah um and and also i mean the the ending the way the camera sort of pans around was very much like um by chantal akerman and there were all um even sort of Laura Mulvey's um, Riddles of the Sphinx, I kept thinking about sort of watching the film, and I, you get the, the in inter- camera precisely. Yeah, you know the term. I don't. <laughs> so um, I, I, I merely watch these things. Um, <laughs> I yeah. I, I suppose I was I was sort of seeing. Well, I I, I was talking. I've talked to some people who said that th- these like these things sort of made it feel very much like a first film. But to me, it just felt like Charlotte Wells was very much sort of. In touch with her influences and in the films that um, that she is sort of pulling from, but creating something completely original. And with those films as well, with Morphin Caller and and with *After Sun*, there is this sort of imagery of returning to the sea and these scenes on on coasts and the use of the ocean and the sort of the threat of it almost um, as as a sort of existentialist idea that that comes comes about in in those films and the ties to family that can, that can complicate that existentialism, um, I think is just really fascinating. And, and, and as you say, the fact that Blue Black Permanent is a film made in 1992, but actually we're now seeing it in a different way because it's, it's more available and more people are aware of Margaret Tate and will hopefully continue to do so, um, that we are seeing these, these, these connections. Um, one of the other films that I was thinking about was Ennis Main, the new Mark Jenkins film, particularly with the shot of the flowers—the small, um, I don't know what type of flowers they are. I'm not a botanist. Um, the small pink flowers. Okay. Um,
1: oh, the, the, in um in Blue Black Permanent or in, in
0: Blue Black Permanent?
1: They're, they're I know this because um <laughs> Greta, Steven, Greta Stevenson helpfully identifies them. So who um had spent time in Orkney? They're the Primula Scotica. Which only grow uh, in very limited coastal regions yeah. uh, of the very north of Scotland, and the, so they're Highlands and Islands specifically coastal flowers. And the island in the film is never named. Um, mm. Gre- Greta never says, "Oh, I'm going back to Orkney." It's just the island. No. But that flower is, you know, pr- most common. It's very rare. But it's most common on Orkney, mm. so it's sort of like a little signature. Right. In the film. Well,
0: I think that's very similar to what Jenkin is doing in in Ennismain with the flowers and that have you seen it?
1: I haven't actually seen it
0: yet. I, I recommend you do so um it's again it's sort of an unnamed Cornish island um with um Mary Woodvine sort of going around and um the coastal area and and it has all of these sorts of like the the radio playing the BBC home service that kind of thing and these these the the pips aligning with the ch with the chiming of the church bells at that moment mm. and um the clock ticking and these sorts of onieric Bergman-esque scenes I suppose that all, almost with Celia Rimory saying that she's she's able to fly and um they're just absolutely stunning but it it, it I, I think that that perhaps that's what Ennis Main's coming out of. We won't talk about it too much if you um haven't seen it. But um I just I think that that sort of I mean, Nene's has been talked a lot about as a folk horror, and I suppose the idea really is that the folk aspect. But these are folk films, and there there is a folk tradition of sort of um, specific times and places in Britain capturing a landscape and capturing, mm. um, which um, I, I I suppose is tied to in in British cinema anyway. But prior to um, Blue, Black, Permanent, that this, it's sort of, um, there is a horror aspect in, in, I mean, I'm thinking in particular of the Wicker Man, of, of sort of, you know, going to these places and everyone being really strange and parochial, and this sort of fear of the, um, of, of of people from these places who aren't, as you were saying earlier, sort of tied to the more urban centres, places like like London. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything in that. Yeah, I,
1: I, that, those, um, Incomer films, and again, this kind of colonial primitivization, this horror of rural continuities uh, and regional communities, it's, uh, I hate to be so boring and like banging on about this, it's tied to funding structures of British film, exactly what Margaret Tate was complaining about to Lindsay Anderson, that if there's only funding and facilities for filmmaking in London and the Southeast, then, uh, and that's where directors have to come whether they're British directors or you know directors who are coming like Antonioni coming from other countries then the eye on the world outside London will not have any respect for the traditions there those traditions will be a historicized they'll um, yeah be interpreted uh, as horror and the interesting thing with a uh, really powerful thing with Mark Jenkins' work is that it's inverting that mm-hmm. and while it's you know maintaining the uncanny it is doing it from within the local tradition and all of Tate's um, published fiction Uh, in her two collections uh, one for adults and one one for children is about that and there's a number of really funny stories about in commerce so there's one about a musicologist who comes to the island to record folk music and so he gets taken to a bar where there's a lot of older people (laughs) they sing him songs and at the end he says well that one's not folk music that's a pop record and you know you just heard it off the radio and one of them says well if I sing it, it's folk music, you know, right. don't try and trap us in the past, but also they don't sing him their best songs mm. because they know very well that he's just going to profit off them. So right. that yeah. that negotiation of I'm making a film in Orkney, that's not about Orkney, it's not kind of a tourist board uh, film and you know Tate was approached by the Scottish and Orkney Tourist Board to make uh, films. She made a short series, a series of shorts called "Aspects of Kirkwall," um, which are about things like people driving tractors. There's one where she gets some of the the signs against nuclear power in the windows of Kirkwall buildings. In you know, she was an absolute holy terror. You know, no compromise. Mm no producing tack tac tack precifications that meet the John Grierson you know white people's colonial yeah. gaze at all that's not what she was interested in it was storytelling um from the inside and I mean veering making a wild segue for me you know seeing Orlando when I was like 14 it felt like the first one of the first times I'd seen a film from the inside about gender and sexuality I mean I you know section 28 had come in four years earlier and you know mm-hmm. obviously Derek Jarman Jimmy Somerville were part, famously photographed at the protests and 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 Sally was there as well um though not famous enough to get arrested um mm-hmm. on camera uh so making this film is pretty daring because yeah. you know it's not like Orlando was being taught in schools, or Virginia Woolf as a as a queer person was being talked about in the curriculum. Um and the film just, you know, picks up British history from the inside and says, Well, it it was queer, it was feminist. Mm -hmm. Um, we have to, you know, start decolonizing it. And the film is still really remarkable for having. In a sense, that in, that insider perspective of those conversations that have been happening, but hadn't translated into right. mainstream British fiction film, like they're they're all over the experimental cinema of the seventies and eighties uh, and early nineties. But to have it in that narrative film, you could see it your local cinema. And similarly with Blue, Black, Permanent. This, you know, it's the, Tate was the first Scottish woman to make a funded feature length fiction film mm. in nineteen ninety two. That's like, it's really hard to wrap your brain around that. Yeah. You know, so two Northern Irish women, Pat Murphy and Margot Harkin, had made features at least. But Tate was the first Scottish woman. It, it you know, it, the the sort of arrogance of the centralized industry to assume that all the stories that are worth telling and could be told are coming from there and flying outwards and as you say then constructing this oh well i went there for and it was you know a bit unnerving and i came back um rather than listening to the you know evolving traditions of storytelling that were present uh in those places it's it's really shocking and and the the kind of incredible skill and confidence of Blue Black Permanent, I think people often a bit patronizing to it. Like, oh, mm. it's the first film by a little old lady. Oh, there must have been lots of hand holding, mm. you know, uh, as if Tate hadn't spent her life making films, watching films, supporting other yes. people to try and make films, talking to filmmakers like Lindsay Anderson, um, and also being immersed in in a home storytelling tradition. Mm. Um, and it just, it's shy, you know, I really hear what you say about people say, oh, of some feels like first film, like, well, why not? Yeah. You know, what's wrong with that energy of something that's a first film that's trying to encompass everything in its world. And that's, you know, how that film feels to me. It's just like running towards you with everything in its arms. Mm. It's exhilarating. Um, And Blue Black Permanent has that as well, but also tempered by a lifetime. Of of making films and, you know, as a GP also of listening to people, listening to people's stories.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean that 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 level of that sort of criticism about a first feature is one that seems to be played against women more than um men. Anyway. Uh-
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's yeah. another podcast series. <laughs>
0: exactly. Um, but it is it is extraordinary, isn't it, to sort of think of a, a first feature being I mean, I forget how old Charlotte Wells is, but she's she's rather young um by by contrast to a first feature made by as you say a 73 year old woman um that there, there is something something very different there and I suppose that's that's partly what's so fascinating at looking at Margaret Tate next to Sally Potter here is 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 that there is this this age difference mm-hmm. between them and I mean I don't want I don't know we've talked a bit about Sally Potter's sort of experience with the film industry at that point um but I suppose it's also really important to remember what happens after this, because Sally Potter's career is never sort of at the same level after this. I mean, I, I always think of Jean de Lackerman sort of saying that she hates that she made Jean Dillman so early in her career because she spent the rest of her career struggling to sort of get the same attention to to
1: mm. her later works.
0: Is that the case for Sally Potter, do you, do you think?
1: I think um, women filmmakers get tokenized by one Mm. film, even when they get to make more films. And it can happen in all sorts of different ways. So, for example, Julie Dash um, makes a medium-length film, uh, Illusions, and then Daughters of the Dust. um, And then goes on to have a career working in what's called industrial cinema, making films for museums, businesses, Television, um, but is regarded as having only made one fiction feature film. So, part yeah. one of the things that happens is the fiction feature film is the you know the Beatles and Angel. It's seen when it's given to people from previously underrepresented communities. Getting to make a fiction feature film is like the prize in itself. Like congratulations, right. you're done. Move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think Vada had a similar experience with Cleo, although she mm-hmm. you know continued working right. for another. Yeah. 60 years <laughs> 60, 60 years um uh you know and both Odan and Ackerman uh moved into making installations uh in the same way someone like Isaac Julian uh, has done who yeah. you know made um Young Soul Rebels and then looking for Langston and then yeah. everyone's like well you've had your prize yeah. um so Sally you know like uh Verdun and and, A- and Ackerman went on making features uh, with significant gaps between them. So that's part also part of what happens, is the struggle to right, raise certainly. funding. Yeah. Um and even in the career of someone like Celine Siyama you can see that it's, you know, five films between 2007 and 2021. Like, if you compare that to the work rate of Xavier Dolan or, you know, um, it's like, congratulations, you won all these prizes, you're very successful. We're still going to force you to prove yourself. And often it's about, it's filmmakers who are, very committed to their way of working, which is yeah. often a way that's ethical, it's responsible. It's like, I want time to write and develop. I want time to work with my cost and crew. I don't want to, you know, make something in a compressed, really compressed period of time. So for the most part, Sally Potter continues making independent films through her production company, Adventure Pictures. Um, after Orlando, she makes a film called The Tango Lesson, which yeah. while not being especially like let's say considered a classic in Britain is like revered around the world. And yeah, it's like, funny. you know, was a hugely important film when it screened in um, Plaza del Mar in Argentina. Um, it's a film that's partially shot in Buenos Aires and it's about reparation and reconciliation. You know, uh, time when Argentina was emerging from uh, the dictatorship. Um, and then, you know, sort of on the international success of that film gets to make a historical drama with working title, hmm. um, called The Man Who Cried with A-list Stars, Kate Blanchett, um, Christina Ricci, uh, in a, a really fabulous role uh, as a young uh, Jewish woman who travels from Russia to Britain. Um, ahead of pogroms and then from Britain to France, and it's in France when the Nazis in Paris when the Nazis invade, working as a showgirl uh, with Kate Blanchet, who is also a showgirl, um, the greatest showgirl ever to be on screen, uh, and Johnny Depp and John Turturro, uh, uh are in it as well. And less good you know, showgirls. Sorry, they are also sh- yes, I they are. I show said girls. less good.
0: That's, I said less good showgirls. They are.
1: They are less good showgirls, but they are. <laughs> They are absolutely (laughs) showgirls. In fact, Depp is kind of a show pony, shall we say. Uh, The You know, just like literally a a few days before going into production, Working Title said you have to cut like 20% of the scenes and cut this much off your budget and restructure overnight. Um, And so I don't know what choices... Uh, Charlotte Wells is going to make I hope she has you know the same ways of working and money pouring towards her that Francis Lee and Mark Jenkins have had to like continue working the way that she wants to work like the incredible trust with actors that she builds Um, and I think you know the the British industry is in a different place now with its understanding of like just how important independent cinema is to defining the reputation of British cinema around the world that doesn't mean there's much more money for it you know it's all still Mm. inward investment for making American TV Um, but yeah I, you know I've been doing this research on Orlando learning things that are just you know like singe your eyebrows like there are only 10 prints of Orlando distributed in the UK on first release there were 40 in Italy okay but only 10 in That's the UK a,
0: Yeah. after to it had already
1: been successful in Australia and yeah. the US and you know being like this core celebra at Venice and Toronto yeah. so some something that people said about Jarman Derek Jarman a lot um who was you know had this very regular relationship with the Venice Film Festival was you know that thing about profits mm-hmm. not being heard in their own country really applied to to British visionary filmmakers and both jarman and potter are people who have you know enormous reputations around the world and who have lent a luster to the rep- reputation of british cinema mm. as francis lee and mark jenkins and charlotte wells uh and isaac Julien, uh you know have done and are doing while mm. in their own country they are not as valued as like you know i was i got to be at a screening the first ever screening of the gold diggers in korea at the seoul international women's film festival in 2017 um so the film had been withdrawn in the uk and it wasn't shown in south korea because uh, of the military government at the time right um and there were there was uh, a woman in the audience who came up to me at the end uh, in tears. So uh, Sally couldn't be there. So I'd just been asked to say a few words about the film, which is obviously an incredible honour, but I, you know, I didn't make it. And she said, please, can you tell the director that I've had a, sh- a shrine for f- 30 years where I've been waiting to see this film because I've read about how important it is. And I just knew how much it would tell me about my relationship with my mother and like the kind of cause. So people in the audience are making these incredible observations. I've never heard in a British screening about kind of how the film is working on this cosmic level, on this geological level, you know, how it's thinking about, you know, the powers of creation Mm. um, expressed through this allegorical story. And it was just, you know, you realize cinema really is, you know, a global language and global medium as well as global marketplace and I think Britain is just so cringe like we're so cringe about people who have vision and right. talent that doesn't Absolutely. fit the like industrial yeah.
0: well I mean that I suppose it makes sense I mean, if we're talking about Orlando um that for that to follow in the same way that Virginia Woolf's works are being treated in this country, sure. um, I mean, the fact that I, I mentioned to you before we did this that um, I'd seen the Neil Bartlett play based on Orlando, which is just which has um, been at the Garrick in London, um, directed by Michael Grandage, and it's extraordinary how much Bartlett misunderstands that novel. Um, and what that novel's doing. I mean, you mentioned the fact that they sort of have this pantomime gesture where they say "ladies and ge- ladies and gentlemen" and everyone every single time. I mean, it's multiple times throughout mm. the play, um, and it has this sort of comical dresser who follows Orlando through time, um, and this co- and all of the supporting cast of this chorus of Virginia Woolf's And um, I interviewed. Michael Grant recently and he he said that oh it was it was it was our idea to have like all of these people representing the various sort of facets of Virginia Woolf's identity um which I just found absolutely baffling I just the, the idea that part of Virginia Woolf's identity is that it is a, like m- multiple sort of um ethnic backgrounds and um a really bizarre concept I just couldn't mm. get my head around what the point of that was and i suppose it's this mythologizing of virginia wolf that is happening at an increasingly rapid rate um and the idea that this play is trying to say something about gender as if it's new as if this is something that's only just started mm. to exist that i find absolutely bizarre and i think that that while while orlando the film can't quite capture the same nuance of the novel, and I am just There's all sorts of reasons why that is. I mean, partly just to do with the medium I think that it does. It it does it in a in a way which which is a lot more subtle that that treats it with the same sort of objectivity that mm. the novel treats Orlando's sex across the the story. Um, how how do you feel about that, and how we sort of how it's being framed now, how people are sort of interpreting Orlando in the wake of the absolute hysteria that we sort of experience <laughs> at that moment.
1: I mean, I want to give a shout out to um, Orlando the Drag King for right. um, performing exactly fashion mm. in, in both senses of that word, that, you know, we use it colloquially to mean you know what I'm wearing today, and then I'm going to look at tomorrow and be like, "Oh my god, how did I ever put that on?" <laughs> and you know what? What Stephen Greenblatt just up some heavy names here, called self-fashioning. Yeah. So this idea that he says begins in the Renaissance and begins with Shakespeare, and you know that Wolf is like, you know, absolutely nails by saying starting the book in the Renaissance. I mean, that's just a coincidence. That's like just when the yeah, cycle West's
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, Took over uh, a knoll, were granted knoll by royal fire, and I'll come back to them in a minute. Side eye, Um, you know, this this first time that people have mirrors, they have portraits, um, they have you know the wealthy, they have. They can change their clothes all the time, and it's not just, oh. oh, you have to wear what the king tells you. So, this idea that you're sort of making yourself through these declarations of taste in clothing, in literature, in art, in architecture, um, is really the theme of the novel. You know, Wolf is writing back to her father's work as a biographer um Leslie Stevens who wrote Eminent uh, Victorians and um, if you sort of trace through her career as as a novelist and as a non-fiction writer she's always asking herself the question what is a biography mm. what is a life what does it actually tell you you know her father's like oh the spirit of the age and Orlando is this huge joke about the spirit of the age capital yeah. S capital A uh, and one of the things that happens at the end of Orlando which does change the ending um and Chose Orlando going, why the fuck would I want to own a property associated with like colonialism and bloodshed? You can have it. It's your problem now, National yeah. Trust. Um, is the spirit of the age literally embodied <laughs> uh, in the brilliant um, Jimmy Somerville mm-hmm. uh, in a pair of extremely short shorts and angel wings, looking like he yeah. literally just flew in from heaven the nightclub? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite gags. Um, no, it's, good. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Uh, on some wires in a tree singing uh, a brilliant song uh, that, that Sally wrote um, <laughs> about defying the idea of linear history, defying the idea that we have to live by the tra- traditions of our ancestors. Not that we can right. cut ourselves off completely. We have to be critical of them. And I think that's that's really important for me in seeing like how do we respond to Wolf and Orlando now? This is a novel that begins with Orlando swinging his sword at the severed head Mm-hmm. of a of an african soldier that has been taken who'd been taken prisoner by his ancestors um in the crusades and you know wolf is taking a swing at history and she's taking a swing at sort of daring do type pirate novels but it's also the fact that the 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 book begins with this racist wow. scene um, and you know, Wolf once wore blackface. She did also edit and publish CLR James when she was older and had had time to have a bit of a think about being a racist idiot. Um, you know, people are are complex, but we need to tell the fullness of that story. And as you say, not just go, "Oh well," you know, it. You know, we want casting to be open to everyone, but it's not like the central casting no. was race blind in the in the play. Um, But, yeah, I mean, in 1992, one of the ways the film, you know, was talked about, people did see it as a critique of empire. They saw it as a critique of class uh, uh, in British history of property owning. You know, there were articles written about how it was, you know, the first Marxist British mainstream fiction feature because she does give up the house at the end. And all Mm. the way through, there is this criticism of, British royalty and aristocracy is just like obsessed with fashion, obsessed with ownership and, you know, really silly, you know, Harry in particular is this very silly figure. And in a sense, what Orlando is, is looking for is to get out of that pomp and circumstance mm. and to connect with what um, Greta has, you know, Orlando wants to be a poet. They want to be a poet of place. I, we can use all pronouns for orlando i'm really i mean this right. is something i'm really wrestling with in the book like am i gonna mm. is it gonna be chapter by chapter or am i just gonna mix them up or right. just use oh as a pronoun like what do you think um uh orlando you know the first time we see let's say him because at the beginning of the film right. those are the pronouns he's using That's
0: t- that tends to be how i how i do this <laughs> yeah
1: okay let's let's use this so he's he's writing a poem and he's sitting under a tree like total it's a cliche right he's very very rich he's meant to be meeting the queen and he's sitting there writing a poem but there's something there's a core of something there that he wants to connect to that isn't nationalism it's Mm. not the pastoral uh it's not you know the metaphysicals it's like what what they get back to at the end is that moment with the tree and it's this visionary moment it's blake's angel it's walter benjamin's angel it's gay disco you know Mm -hmm. there's a different story about not britishness as a nationalism but about the concatenation and coincidence of things that happened in britain due to colonialism and class and and resisting both of those Mm -hmm. that the film wants to tell and for me that's the like connecting that to undoing the gender binary is like that's what's ecstatic. those things have to happen together right yeah so and as you say like for one film to contain all of that and then wolf's theories about like the history of literature all the places that orlando goes and all the people that they see you know that's a the film is 90 minutes Mm. and it chooses incidents from the book and it's like very carefully structured about time um really like acts of a play but you know making fun of this idea of the spirit of the age like how can the whole spirit of one age be death which is where it starts and then yeah. it ends with birth um and you know blue black permanent is playing with time in ways that are really reminiscent of the of the gold diggers actually which it's also a story about um some a woman trying to remember her mother. In that case, you know, Julie Christie, sort of riffing on her character in uh, Doctor Zhivago In some ways, it's like, oh, wow. her, you know, the the daughter's character in Doctor Zhivago at the beginning. He's like, my mother, I remember my mother. But then she does remember her mother, and she remembers that her mother, um, being sort of taken away from her by her father, who's a coal miner, who's involved, therefore, in like resource extraction and and settler colonialism. Um, And then she has to So, what do I do with that? Well, I'm going to run away from the marriage market. I'm going to run away with a gorgeous black butch woman on a white horse. Sure. Um, And we're going to live happily ever after and remake creation with a woman welder. The spark of life. I mean, it's just gorgeous. How could people not like that film? Hmm. Julie Christie running away from being everyone's darling. Yeah, male critics loved it um
0: yeah I bet
1: (laughs) I think there was one who literally said like you know you've taken my masturbation fantasy away horrific so you know blue black feminine isn't it's it's not quite you know it's not engaging with star value and cinema in in quite that way um but it is telling the story of like how do we recover memory how do we work in the gaps of memory and that's both um you know always a micro story of like within one family but mm. definitely in both of them it's like that bigger question of like in terms of the histories of marginalized communities that have been erased how do we build genealogies when so much has been deliberately taken away mm. from us uh and then, you know in blue black permanent that's marked by the the trauma of um, Greta's death, which could be read uh, as suicide, it um, could be read as sort of merging with the island, but you know either way, leaves um, her children with you know a parent right. who seems like you know he's okay, but they do lose they do lose a parent, and um, for Barbara, the the loss of a, an artistic forebear, okay. and that's you know who she's really looking to reclaim is to say you know as an artist I have this history of of artists behind me and you know so I mentioned Anne Scott Moncrief as one of the young women writers who were around the Rose Street poets and known my Tate who wasn't so much part of that group because she said she didn't feel that she was very clubbable she'd like rather sleep in her car and look at nature than sit on a man's knee in a pub and laugh at his joke oh Hugh you're so clever yeah um, <laughs> So, um, you know, the uh, two other figures were her sister-in-law, Alison Leonard Tate, who was a poet and newspaper editor who died very young uh, in childbirth. And there's a, a incredibly heartbreaking poem by Tate about Alison saying, like, you know, as a doctor, I should have been able to save you. Um, and then also Stella Cartwright, who was a, a poet also of Tate's generation who died in 1985, these three very magnetic and charismatic um, Scottish women writers who were always um, seen as subservient to the better known men like Norman McCaig uh, and Edwin Muir around them. Um, And people often say like, oh, you know, Tate was so isolated. She wasn't close to any of the filmmakers. She wasn't close to any of the writers, but she had like... She knew these like incredibly brilliant writers who just, mm-hmm. you know, were facing that struggle of like being a wife, being a mother, being a writer. And Tate had opted out of some of that and was making that path for herself. And she sort of splits, you know, that's the Barbara element. And her friends are a Greta. Um, and it's just a real love letter, you know, um, from someone who's, you know. Not a parent, not married to artists who are and were saying, like, I see your struggle, and I accept whatever way you you moved on that, whatever way you dealt with that. Um, and it has this, you know, people call them flashbacks, but they're not flashbacks because they're yeah. not Barbara's memories. They're yeah. her memories of the stories that her mother told her that they're seen in Greta's perspective. And they have this intensity. So probably like one of my favourite scenes in all of cinema is when Greta's on the boat, mm. going back to Orkney. Yeah. And the, she gets brought this cup of tea mm. and she sits on the boat and you can tell it's absolutely freezing. The sky is like bright, bright, bright blue. The sea is like, you know, one of the rougher seas uh, around the British Isles. And there's just this vividness, this excitement. She's going You know, it's complicated. She's like going back from her adult life to her, you know, the the home of her childhood. She's going back to her dad, who didn't totally approve of her marriage. She's leaving her like exciting autistic life in Edinburgh, but she's also got free from her kids to (laughs) go and nurse her dad. So sandwich carer, shout out. And she's just, it's like there's a moment in between where she's just like, as you say, on the ocean. And everything that, you know, that's the sea means, and she's holding this cup of tea. I've never wanted like a food or drink that is in film as much as, you know, it's in, you can see the chip white mug in your head, yeah. and it's just this gesture. There's no dialogue in that scene, hardly. This gesture between, you know, two locals, two workers. It just, yeah, it is a poem, and it's also that state of creativity. Right. It's like, we see her in you know, that state where finally your creative brain can work. And she's not running between her kids and the like male artist and, you know, mm. listening to the news. It's just being. And that's mm. the end of Orlando as well. It's like, how do we have Wolf, you know, coins that phrase, moments of being are mm. uh, the moments when we're noticing most intensely and we become creative people through through doing that. And, yeah. you know, trauma blocks that poverty blocks that um microaggressions block that so these very very rare moments Mm. um and so yeah there's something just really stunning about about that for me um and how that moment of being relates to the films having this kind of play with Mm. time like well if you can have a moment of being who the fuck needs linear time straight time fuck it um i've just been writing about celine siama's petite maman yeah. a most recent film, which also is just like, yeah, time travel. I love that. How'd it happen? I don't know. You run around in the woods, you slip in some mud, boom, you're at your grandma's house when yeah. your mom was a kid. I watched it with my six and a half year old niece and I was like, do you think they should explain? And she was like, explain what? Yeah. You know, to her, it just made perfect sense. Of you course. know, they're playing, they're playing. Yeah. So I want to see more films like this. You know, I, like. I think the- that's
0: really, yeah. The, the sort of relying on the intelligence or just the acceptance of an audience to just sort of accept what's going on. I mean, I say that um, I, I did ha- have to do some handholding um, with some people through um Greta Gerwig's Little Women where it's like okay no (laughs) we're in this time period now which but maybe maybe that maybe that does help if you if you're very familiar with the story and and Mm. the novel. I I don't know but with something like Petite Maman I just think that that's absolutely essential to it is is that sort of that children children just accept they don't question necessarily Mm. that that and I think that that's what Celine Scammer's is trying to do in that film—is recapture that 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 sort of inherent acceptance, and the way that Wolf writes the the shifts in in Orlando are very similar. That sort mm. of um, you know we shall use um she for he and you know and that and that and that's it that's how it's gonna go from I mean, now uh, on you just have to not, accept it yeah And
1: that not just be the official grc just like right. a big quote from virginia <laughs> i mean that would like take all the heritage boxes right <laughs> <You laughs> yeah, Put the pronouns like... in as you want them it's just, it we shall now like, use we'll,
0: we'll let scientists debate this separate... they could you know <laughs> they can they, they can have their discussions Um, I don't care because that's just what happened. That's Um, what
1: happens. We'll play a little trumpet as you come out so you get like a little, you know, it could be some brass from a Beyonce record, like, you know, mix it up, choose choose, choose your brass. Um, Choose your horns, I suppose. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, it's and, you know, part of the thing with Petite Maman is it's like, why can't film just be moments of being? Like, why can't it call us into presentness, into yeah. communion. And I, I think all three of those filmmakers mm-hmm. sort of share that interest in an ecstatic, which yeah. I think is a little bit different than Moving Color. I <laughs> mean, ecstatic is like with co- yeah. a capital no, E. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: in the in the play of Orlando, um, it's it's like that subtlety is completely taken away. I mean, we talked. I talked the the, the the pantomime aspects. I mean, it opens with Orlando standing on a bed, raising his arms up um, so that his nightshirt pulls up to reveal a very large prosthetic penis. Um, mm-hmm. And later on, I'm pretty sure that that when the the change happens that we suddenly see Emma Corrin's chest. And it's right. like trying... So it's, it's doing it on a very sort of in-your-face, deliberate level. Mm-hmm. But it, it's supposed to be comical. I mean, people laugh at these moments mm-hmm. because it's that the there's a comedy made of the change. Um mm-hmm. and these sorts of winks to audience that that Bartlett's putting in in order to make it, you know, Orlando for our times and, mm-hmm. and and so on. That I just found incredibly egregious. It was just like, why why are you doing this? This is not what is is going on in the book at all. If you I mean, I want. I don't even know if Orlando's meant to be on the stage. I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced of that, in general. Um,
1: but you'd but also to, think in to, Orlando. To miss
0: that point? Yeah, sorry.
1: Yeah, and Orlando, for our times, would specifically say this isn't about someone's genitals mm, or precisely. secondary sexual characteristics relating to how they identify and carry themselves in the world, mm. um, and you know the film does have uh, famously uh, a full frontal nude shorts, um, mm. which was initially censored in Japan due right. to the prohibition on showing pubic hair on screen in Japanese cinema uh, at the time. Um, and it was the first film to um, have that ban removed on artistic reasons mm. because the Japanese censor board decided it was so important to establish the mm. genital identity. of orlando at that point in time but that's not the focus of the scene it just happens that like full frontal nudity up to that point was only a trait of well european cinema so you know the it's a very mediated scene in which you know it it takes a while to build up to that it's first we see orlando um undressing washing and then looking in the mirror and just you know that very famous line of you know you know um same person no difference at all just a different sex Mm. and it's reflected in a mirror mediated away from us uh and then the film moves on Mm. um and it's not presented as any sort of oh this is like the most authentic moment when there's no clothing on um and then later in the film, there's a shot that where Orlando's in bed with Shalmadine and it explores their bodies at, like, extreme close-up. Mm-hmm. And you're not sure which body outline you're looking at. Right. Uh, and they kind of blend into one or mirror each other. Um, which, like, you know, when you're 14, you're like, what? It's happening! <laughs> this is not just Arnold Schwarzenegger with no pants on and Terminator a reason yeah. that terminator was very popular in the 80s. Like we were starved. We didn't have like only fans. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh my god. Um yeah. If you wanted
1: to know anything about bodies, like mm. you had to watch Art House Cinema. Yeah. But that moment at the beginning of Orlando, like the stage play replicates like the crying Mm. game and what people are are so critical I was was
0: going to say that 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 mirror shot as you say of the full frontal nudity is very much sort of aligning itself with the the trope of a lot of films about um, trans people um, Mm. where you sort of you do that to show a sort of dissonance between the body that you're looking at and, and the genitals that are being shown within that shot um which, but yeah, in this say, case, like, it's
1: it's not a dissonance. It's a no. It's not a dissonance. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Um, which, yeah. Whereas I suppose that's the point of it in in the play. Although I would I would definitely say that sort of Emma Corrin's own identity and performance and the way that they move between the male Orlando and the female Orlando is so inherent to their performance in that character mm. um, that. To add those dimensions is almost um, an injustice to them. It's like this: this is this is what they are capable of doing mm-hmm. purely through their performance. Leave it at that; it would work so well. I mean, if you do see it, Emma Corrin is the reason to see it because I think mm-hmm. that they're able to almost navigate that better than than Tilda Swinton perhaps does um, within. The film. Um, mm-hmm. Although, of course, Dilda Swinton's talked more about her identity later on in, in um, her career and um the sort of plays of gender that, that have defined her as, as an actor.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna throw another film into the mix <laughs> here that um has just was released on DVD by B- BFI a couple of years ago, um, which was the film that sort of led Sally Potter to say okay I found my Orlando hmm. and it's a film called Friendship's Death by right. Peter Wallen so if yes. we're talking about like the visionary political, <laughs> you know artistic strain in British cinema Peter Wallen of course made a number of films with Laura Mulvey including of oh. The Sphinx which we Uh, already mentioned and Friendship's Death was a film he wrote and directed solo produced by Rebecca O'Brien who went on to produce for Ken Loach and it's set during Black September in Amman and Bill Passan plays a Scottish journalist who's there covering it and he meets um an alien robot played by Tilda Swinton Mm. so Swinton plays Friendship who is a robot who has been built by aliens so not a cyborg but built to resemble a human because she because they've they've built the robot to appear female on their understanding of earth broadcast that this will afford some sort of mercy um uh she's being sent to earth to tell earthlings like to stop war because mm. they're heading in a bad direction and instead of landing at MIT she crash lands in Amman um, and becomes increasingly involved in the PLO struggle um, there. So yes this is a British film made in 1986 it's mind-blowing and Swinton's performance as a non-human robot a machine built by a like monkey-like aliens to resemble a human, oh. to explore that gap. And the film, you know, specifically talks about why the robot was gendered in the way that it was like, in some ways it's it's very much like, a, you know, I'm sure it was an influence on Under the Skin, mm. but with yeah, a, non- no, definitely. Yeah. a non-tragic ending, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, Friendship is a much more self-directed, cool, ironic uh character um you know and sometimes she's very impassioned about the rights of typewriters uh as yes. well as you know <laughs> women and palestinian people and she just sees you know white white people as having this like dominance relationship to everything mm. so when i saw you know friendship's death and then you know i asked sally potter and she was like you know yeah that was the film that really right i was like huh that's my orlando it's someone who's like can convey something that is beyond but the the humanity about that also is configured differently than um a human not just because of gender but because Orlando lives for 400 years yeah of course which we somehow haven't mentioned yet um because <laughs> we just we're like yeah cool like my niece watching petite mama sure and the film just does that it's like mm. Elizabeth I played by uh Quentin Crisp the you know greatest queen britain has ever produced the only queen i recognize um so she tucks uh a deed into orlando's garter, uh which then causes everyone in america to wear leggings and also orlando to live forever and be young forever to extraordinary um products of a piece of paper being tucked in your garter. And yeah. it's a sort of joke about like the fantasy of British aristocracy thinking, oh, you know, Britain will be in charge forever and will own everything forever right. and deeds in perpetuity and blah, blah, blah. Um, but both this like the perpetual youthfulness and the immortality have this kind of this quality that is not that of a, a human lifespan. In, mm. in other films without any of the traits or traits of science fiction um, gathering around it um, and I think yeah that that makes it such a great role for an mm. extraordinary actor yeah. because it is about performance it is about conveying that um, I think if the film were made now it would be cast really differently mm. um but yeah, in 1992, you know, I think part of it was also that Swinton was associated with with Jarman, uh and that merry mm-hmm. m- band who were trying to break all the binaries in British cinema. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Um and there's a, as I think I mentioned earlier, um, there's another episode of the podcast um with Madeline Pullman Jones where I talk about Caravaggio and uh, Orlando, where we, we we sort of spend the whole time pretty much talking about Tinder Swinton's casting um in Jarman's films and and then in Orlando. Um so as a supplementary listen, I, I would say that's that's probably um a good one for, for people listening to this. Um
1: I, I guess you know, having said the that... Tilda Swinton you know there is this alternate history in which she played Greta I want to you know talk about the extraordinary performance by Gerda Stevenson who's a poet um, herself and who read the script and sort of campaigned uh, for the part of Greta and brings this incredible intensity and at-homeness you know I don't want to get into words like naturalism or authenticity but in a bit like you said about Emma Corrin brings their experience to the role their physicality which is very mercurial um, and their you know political experience as someone who came out as non-binary I think Gerda Stevenson brings her experience as a poet writing in Scotland someone who knows Orkney um someone who's moved in that world who knows the kind of small edinburgh scene uh that is being referred to who knows that, that landscape um and you know which is not to say that another actor couldn't and i think like the swinton family own half of scotland so uh you know i'm sure tilda swinton's trumped on some i mean, she pulled like a mobile screen through the highlands uh with uh, Mark Cousins, so she knows mm. that landscape. Yeah. Yeah. But um yeah, it's just it's again, and I think you know it's easy to insult it by talking about its freshness or naturalness or non-professional. Like Gerda Stevenson was a professional artist and thinker, and it's a very competent filmic cinematic performance, but it has this connectedness um that mm. just makes Greta you know, as I said, like in that scene in the boat, but also in the scenes on the beach, in the scene where she stops to write that poem in the rain on mm. the stairs in Edinburgh. And, the, you know, the film is called Blue Black Permanent after the bottle of ink on yeah. her desk. So <laughs> Dane was like, oh, what am I going to call the film? A bit of a l- last minute decision, apparently. Mm. Um, but the only time we see Greta writing a poem in the film, she writes it in a pencil in the rain, where obviously right. it will wash away and say, so maybe I could just mm. read a bit of the poem
0: no that would be wonderful thank you
1: so um i'm reading it uh lillian can see it and enjoy it but it's in uh, uh an original origins and elements tate's self-published um poetry collection from 1959 published by interim edition which was her company and i want to thank peter todd for all the work that he's done keeping tate's films alive mm-hmm. as he programmed them when she was alive um, they're great friends um, and he's been such a champion of her work. Um, and this is a poem that's in the film, which so Tate writes her own poem into the film as, uh, as Greta's Storms. I wished for a storm to test my strength against. I cried for the gale force wind, for electric explosions, for sheets of rain. I looked to the motionless wisps of cloud, to the serene blue of the sky and wished them transformed. I wished to be battered and to emerge triumphant. I love the beating heat of the uncovered sun and the magic stillness of a wet evening after rain and the calm of the sea which makes it look like heavy, melted, deep coloured stuff. But meantime, through it all, I crave the wave beating, lashing the untamed earth I live on and the screaming of the wild atmosphere I live in. The violence of it pumps my blood faster. So the yeah, might have thought they were getting like the quiet granny of <laughs> British cinema. But as Ahmad River she said she wanted storms and she delivered one. That film does yeah. sweep through cinema like a storm. And I hope that, you know, in the in the way that Orlando did has tenaciously clung on and you know it's now celebrating its 30th anniversary there's a 4k restoration that's going to be released um, and that I hope after some will have that after life um, that blue black permanent can be part of their travels as well and it can become as key a part of how we talk about British women's cinema how we talk about British "Quote unquote regional cinema." How we talk about Scottish cinema and Orcadian cinema, more Orcadian cinema. Orkney Pride, we love, um, which is a, a brilliant group that does screenings uh, at the cinema in Kirkwall. So shout out to Orkney Pride. Um, yeah, I hope it can, you know, in the same way as it circles back and brings Barbara, brings Greta to life, that yeah. we can bring it into our present as well. Yeah,
0: definitely. Thank you so much. That was absolutely wonderful. And thank you for reading the poem so beautifully.
1: <laughs> I'm, You know, I'm 90% a poet and only 10% a film person. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Listen to Lillian, the British cinema podcast. It was hosted and produced by me, Lillian Crawford, and my guest for this episode was So Mayer. You can stream and download episodes of the podcast, Old and New, on all the usual channels, including Apple and Spotify, as well as via the Substack blog. Thank you for listening and toodle pip.